If you would take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And I'm going to read the entire chapter. Romans chapter 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. What sort of things were written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through patience and comforts of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that you may be with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people, and again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with joy, all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I'm going to stop there for sake of time. But the, the title of the message this morning is Bearing the Burden of the Gospel. Bearing the Burden of the Gospel. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. I pray that as we look into the word of God that we would allow the Spirit of God, who's the author of this book, to teach us and instruct us, to empower us, to obey the word of God as it's given, that we might know the joy and peace in believing. Father, I pray there be any in our midst who are walking in a way that is contrary to thee. I pray the Spirit of God would conviction, bring conviction and repentance. Father, there's any in our midst who have never been born again by the Spirit of God. I pray that they help them to see their need this morning help them realize their lost condition and their condemned state, but to understand that God loved them, sent his son to die for them, and they would repent, put their faith and trust in him, they could have assurance of eternal life. And we'll thank you and praise you for what you do. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about bearing the burden of the gospel, I received this email the other day. And the title of it was this, and uh, it was actually an article from Christianity Today. The title of it was, Half of Millennial Christians Say It Is Wrong to Evangelize. Survive, survey finds young believers want others to know about Jesus. They just don't want to speak up about it. The, the article is written by Kate Shellnut. Uh, it was dated February 6, 2019. And it says, quote, Millennials used to be the group that churches and ministries were angling to evangelize. Now all grown up and poised to overtake baby boomers as the largest generation. They're the ones doing the evangelizing. At least they should be. But new research from Barna Group and the creators of the Alpha Course offers some disappointing news regarding the 20-somethings and 30-somethings now on deck to carry on the faith. Nearly half, 47% of practicing Christian millennials, Churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives believe that evangelism is 
wrong. They're more than twice as likely as their parents and grandparents, baby boomers and elders, respectively, to say it's, that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Well, this statistic could easily bolster stereotypes of a lazy, distracted, and increasingly unaffiliated generation. The minority of millennials who have stayed active in the churches also show higher markers of commitment in other areas, as well as a savvier sense of religious pluralism and diversity they were raised about around. The recent Barna release found that despite the reticence around the practice, millennials consider themselves good evangelists and still see themselves as representatives for their faith. Unquote. But they just don't want to speak up about it. But the Bible very clearly teaches that it's our responsibility as God's children to bear the burden of the gospel. Take the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God to all the world. I mean, where is the world headed? I mean, do we care? I mean, all the world, the world is condemned before a holy and righteous God. You know, some people say, well, you don't want to offend them, they might, you know, they might, or, or tell them they might turn away. Uh, is it going to change where they go? No, they're going to hell. That's why Christ died. Otherwise, why did he bother? <laughs> but as we consider this this morning, bearing the burden of the gospel, I want you to notice three things. First of all, we are to be pleasing our neighbor. Verse 1, and really this, this, this a little bit is you know, keeping context here with what we talked about last week in chapter 14 about uh, not, de- not you know, defiling the conscience of your weak brother. You know, we don't live or die unto ourselves. And we read that in, in Romans 14, uh, verse 7. But he says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. To please, the, the, not please ourselves means to please oneself and therefore have an eye to one's own interests. See, too much of the world has the world has an eye on their own interests. And why not? If you only know the world and understand the world and don't understand eternity and the things of God, why not? But we are of God's, uh, who are God's children ought to understand that there's more to, this, to, the, to life than this life. There's an eternity that we have to look forward to where we'll be rewarded or, as you know, the old phrase is, make it by the skin of your teeth as a child of God. And I believe that's a true axiom from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, it's, it's I want to get what I want to do if that is what, as if that is what everybody else is doing all their life. You know, the real secret to a happy, fulfilling life is to get your eyes off yourself and start helping others, bearing the burdens of those God has put in your path of life to help. Now, that's the lesson Psychology 101, and I just saved you $250. (laughs) You know, an example of this in the Bible that the Scriptures give is the wife is a help meet. Her husband. That's what the Bible says. 
1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul said this, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tryeth our hearts. And the idea isn't that we don't live here. We're not here just to please people. In fact, you know, he, he makes that very clear in verse 2. It says, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Now, if you're going to please your neighbor for his good, that means you're going to tell him the truth, which he may take offense to. So, we're not here to please ourselves. We're here to bear one another's infirmities. Again, verse 1 says, We then are strong, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Of course, again, this is connected with chapter 14. And... The word infirmity, so we're to bear one another's infirmities. An infirmity means an error arising from the weakness of the mind. You know, in the church, and he's talking about in the church here, there are those the Lord will bring in who are weak. Now let me stop and say something right here. We all start out that way. We all start out that way. Weak. New Christians, weak. Some people may be saved for years, but are still weak. So there are those that are weak. The word weak means without strength, or figuratively it speaks of Christians whose faith is not yet quite firm. You know, their, 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 their focus is on themselves and not on the promises and providences of God. You know, the circumstances of life trouble them and overwhelm them and cause them to faint. And lead them to err from the weakness of the mind. That's what infirmity means. You know, John Mark was overwhelmed by the hardships of the missionary journey very early on. Didn't take long. And he went home. He went home. Paul would have considered him weak, which he was. He was young in trying to trying to. You know, and starting out, going on a missionary journey, and imagine a missionary journey of the first century, not the 21st century. He couldn't write home to mom or email home to mom every week. And conditions were not good. There were riots everywhere they went against them. So, yeah, he, he wasn't ready for that. His mind wasn't prepared to take that. And he was overwhelmed with it. He would have been considered weak. Because Paul and Barnabas, they kept right on going. That didn't cause them to faint. They had, they had endured, already endured some hardships. You know, this, this error or infirmity is usually the result of wrong teaching or lack of teaching. In context, you know, in the context of the passage here, it could be a brother who thinks he's under condemnation because he ate some meat sacrificed to idols. You know, and really, again, that's a lack of teaching. Paul said, what is an idol? An idol is nothing. There's only one God. So don't worry about it if the meat's offered to idols. You don't need to worry about that. An idol's nothing. It's just a piece of wood or a piece of stone. It, you know, it, it's nothing. It reminds me one time I was in 
when we were in Maine, I was visiting. There's this guy who was a, he was a very big Catholic. He was 450 pounds. And only about this tall. But anyway, he, he was Catholic, and I began to talk to him. Uh, one of the men in the church there uh, made some contact with him. So we went over and we talked to him a couple of times, and he had this little statue of Mary sitting in the window. And I began to, you know, to ask him questions about Catholicism and comparing it with the scriptures. You know, I said, uh, now I see you have a little statue of Mary there. I said, uh, you know, the Bible um, teaches that Mary had children after Jesus was born. And I, and I read it to him. I said, it also says that Mary said that she rejoiced in God, her Savior. She acknowledged that she was a sinner and she needed a savior too. You know what he did? He turned around and said, I'm sorry to Mary. Like it was living or something. That's a dead piece of stone. That's all it is. You know, Paul could have been unsettled or worried about all his life about, about the fact that he, that he, uh, uh, you know, was guilty of putting to death. Had the blood of Stephen's on his hands. But see, he believed and he understood that his sin was born or paid for by the sacrifice of Christ. And even Stephen himself said, lay not this sin to their charge. See, Paul was firm in his conviction that the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all sin. That we have forgiveness of sin in him. Uh, and look at First uh, Timothy chapter one verses. First <clears throat> Timothy one twelve uh, through seventeen. First Timothy one twelve says, "And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, and I obtained mercy." because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, for a pattern of them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul understood that the grace of God was exceeding abundant in his life and his sin was all taken care of, not to be brought up against him again. And it was God who enabled him, putting him in the ministry, and it was to God's glory and his alone. You see, he was strong in faith. Therefore, he bore the burdens of others. And that's what the Bible commands us here. We that are strong, he says, let everyone else please his neighbors to put together vacation. Uh, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that approach thee fell on me. Whatsoever things were written for time were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. The word, again, the word, of course, the weak means, you know, um, not firm in conviction. The word strong means strong in soul, firm in conviction and faith. 
See, we ought not say to those that are weak, well, that's their problem. That's their problem. No, we ought to make their burden our burden. The word bear here means to take up in order to carry or bear, to put upon oneself something to be carried. And the Bible commands this in many places. For example, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, Galatians 6 and verse 2, it says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, it says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. And so we're to comfort the feeble-minded. That's the faint-hearted. And, you know, John Mark fainted. He went back. The weak refers to lacking in discernment. And so we are to bear one another's burdens. When we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. You know, the, that's the, the purpose of the church. Now, we call the church a body. It's a body. The Bible calls it a body. When part of your body is injured or sick, what do the other parts do? Attack it? Yeah, they do. But with help. With help. Little article here from Arizona State University says, Ask a Biologist, written by Kimberly Kent Rep. How the body repairs itself. Ouch, you got a paper cut on your finger. What happens now? Besides the sting you're feeling from the cut, there are germs on that paper that are preparing to invade your body. For your immune system, this means war. As soon as the paper cut into, cuts into the cells of your skin, your body springs into action. First, Blood cells called platelets join together at the paper cut and form a clot to stop the bleeding. The platelets then release chemicals called cytokines, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, into your bloodstream. These attract the attention of certain cells to start healing your cut. They also alert your immune system to scan for infection in the injured area. You will notice the injured area swelling and getting red as all the cells that are called, that are the cytokines called rush to the scene. This swelling is called inflammation. As the germs from the paper begin to attack your body, several different immune cells come to help fight them off. There are cells that hang out just beneath your skin wait for germs. These cells are called macrophages, and they function like dump trucks. They go around underneath your skin and collect all the garbage that isn't supposed to be there. The garbage can be can include damaged cells or bacteria that cause infection. So when part of your body gets injured, the rest of the body goes, rushes to help, rushes to bear. That's what a body's supposed to do. You know, when there's a body part that is weak, often other parts become stronger. Most of you knew Brother Bill Winstead, blind, basically. But I'm telling you what, that old guy could hear. I was up there one, place, one day at his place doing some work, and he decided he's going to go across the road to get the mail. When he got to the mailbox, I said to Evelyn, should he be crossing that road? 
And I said it quietly because I didn't intend for him to hear it. He said, I may not see well, but I can really hear. You see, this, what this means is a genuine concern for the weak that will make an attempt to make them strong by leading out of their wrong thinking that they too can become strong. You know, and again, the purpose of the church is to strengthen one another, edify one another. Note again verse 2, let one, every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Now, Peter, we all know Peter was appointed to be the first pastor, second pastor after Jesus, the church at Jerusalem. But you know, Peter had some problems. He had some real weakness. Said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of the kingdom of God. In Luke twenty two thirty two, Jesus said to him, But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted... Strengthen the brethren. Now, Peter wasn't ready for that job yet in Luke 22. But Jesus said, I prayed for you. And when you get your thinking straightened out, then you'll be able to strengthen the brethren. In John 21, he was told three times, the Lord said to him, you feed my sheep. That's strengthening the brethren. And so we are to bear one another's burdens. You know, here's how it goes. The strong are to support the weak, that they may become strong to support weak. That they may become strong, that they may support the weak, that they may become strong, that they may support the weak, that they may become strong, that they may support the weak. It's a song that never ends, you know. It's a cycle. You know, 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, commit thou to faithful men, so that they can just keep it to themselves. No, so that they shall be able to teach others also. You see, we that are strong are to bear the infirmities. We're to teach the weak so that they become strong, so that they can turn around and teach the weak. So that they can become strong, so that they can turn around and teach the weak. But all of us start out there at the weak. That's where we all start. So we're not here to please ourselves. We're here to bear one another's burdens. Secondly, I want you to notice the power that God gives to bear burdens, or you might call it the power of ministry or to minister. Notice verses 3 through 7. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written for time were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Uh, I want to notice several things here. Which, first of all, I want to mention the power is not of us. It's not of us. You know, Paul stated this over and over again. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, he said, Beside those things that are without, 
that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So he was bearing a burden. He had a burden that he carried with him. The care of all the churches. Every church he started or, or helped start was involved with other missionaries. Started. He, you know, he didn't start any church by himself, by the way. But every church he was involved in, he, he, he was burdened for. And you know, some of them he got, was able to go back to see later, and some of them he wrote epistles to and letters to. Some of them we have in the New Testament, and there are other epistles or letters that he wrote that are not preserved for us. But he was burdened for all this. And, and this is what he said. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And in context of 2 Corinthians, Paul's a frail man, a weak man, a man suffering physical infirmities. And so he says, the power is not of us. I mean, if it was of us, I'd quit. If it's of me, I'd quit. The power isn't of us. In Ephesians 3.20 he says, Now unto him that is able to exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And, and, and here he says, in, in uh, verse 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that ye am abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. See, the power is of God. It's not of us. And notice here the example and instruction of Christ in verses 3 and 4. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. What several things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. You see, and it talks about the reproach of Christ. Now he was willing not to seek his own will that he might carry out the Father's will of dying for our sins, for the sins of the world. He was reproached. That word reproach means he was censured. He was conveyed in disapproval. He was disgraced by the religious leaders of the day. You know, he was reproached. He was willing to do that. That was a burden he bore. But he was willing to do it. He didn't please himself. But he relied on, it is written. That was the thing that sustained him. It is written. See, in verse 4 he says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. You see, the way we learn or are granted this power is by what is written. By appropriating what is written. The way we, you know, he, he, he said he was, it says through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The word patience is, is the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from deliberate, his deliberate purpose. His loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and the sufferings. You know, it didn't matter how much he suffered, he was not removed from his purpose. No matter what Paul faced, he wouldn't be deterred from his purpose. Because he trusted in the scriptures. The word comfort here means cons- consolation or solace afforded by the contents of the scriptures. Now, and so we see the example of the Christ. When he was tempted, he relied on the scriptures. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. 
That's right. But he didn't just do that when he was tempted by the devil. He relied on the promises of God in his word for everything. You know, in John eight twenty nine, he said this, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And go to Luke chapter 24 for just a minute. Luke chapter 24. This is the account of the two on the road to Emmaus. And of course Jesus approaches them and walks with them. And they are sad. And he asks them why they're sad. And they begin to tell him, you know, that, well, we, we thought this one was the prophet, promised prophet, you know. Uh, and the chief priests have condemned him to death and had him crucified. And we thought it was a he that would redeem Israel. And, 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 and now, you know, we've had some at the sepulcher and said he's missing and so on and so forth. And, and he says to them in verse 25, Then he said to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not to Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded in them in all the things the scriptures, them in all things, the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You see, he he went back to what was written and said, this is what it said about me. And that's what he relied on throughout his life. You know, you find over and over again, you know, during the crucifixion, especially in Matthew, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord. You know, they parted my garments. And from a vesture that they cast lots. It was written. All these things were written. And Jesus relied on what was written. And so the challenge, the example is to us, we are to rely on what is written. What is written? We have, it is to us like concrete evidence. You know what our problem is? Our emotions get in the way. Our feelings get in the way. And we all have them. And sometimes we forget what our purpose is. What we're here for. See, being strong in the Lord is not, oh, I'm smart. I know many, many intelligent people who don't rely on the word of God. It's not I am self-motivated or I am strong-willed. No, it is simply I surrender my mind to the mind of God. It is a choice to believe what God has said. That's what we have to bring ourselves to. It is written. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Paul said this. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Could you imagine being Paul? 
Well, we got run out of Thessalonica. What do you think is going to happen when we get to Berea? I don't know. I got stoned at Lystra, but I survived that one. I wonder if I'll survive the next one. Man, I think I'd run back to Jerusalem. No, he said, I have to cast down imaginations. I have a purpose. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. It says this. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Notice, in the vanity of their mind. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. You know, if we live for the world, it will darken your mind. And that's why we need it renewed, uh, verse 23 tells us. And and so, uh, you know, we need to to, uh, bring our thoughts into captivity of Christ and to think right. See, this is what Paul, this was Paul's thinking process. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Ephesians 4, 1. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. God chose me. See, this is, this is Paul's thing process. God chose me before the foundation of the world to be holy in him. To be to the praise of His glory. What a glorified place. Peter spoke of this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father. He's facing martyrdom. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation, ready to be revealed on the last time. We are kept by the power of God. See, they believed that they were in the Lord's hand and they were secure for eternity and protected for His purpose. And that God works all things for His purpose and nothing could take them unless God allowed it. For his purpose. You see, it's a reliance on the Lord that we need to be able to help bear the infirmities of the weak. Secondly, there's an exhortation to be like-minded. If you notice in verses 5 through 7, Romans 15, it says, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God wants us to be like-minded. Wherefore, receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. To be like-minded means to be of the same mind, to agree together, to cherish the same views. You know, this is commanded throughout the New Testament. And first, you know, he, he commanded this. You know, this was a problem with the church at Corinth. They were not of like mind. And it was causing all sorts of problems in the church. 
And in first, you know, Paul starts out his letter in First Corinthians one ten. He says, "Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that y'all speak the same thing. There be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined in the same mind and in the same judgment. There's only one Lord. You ought to all speak the same thing." And again in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 11. He says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. You know, and he wrote about this extensively to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2. In verses 1 through 4. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. The Bible says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. So again, there's a challenge to be like-minded. Chapter 3, verse 16, again, he says, Nevertheless, whereto have we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. And in chapter 4, he names two women. He says, I beseech Eudeus and beseech Sintity that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Romans twelve sixteen again, he says, be of the same mind one to another. You know, God wants us to be like-minded. But for that to happen, there has to be transparency. We have to be open to examining our thinking and our understanding in light of the scriptures. If we aren't willing to examine the scriptures, to to open our minds and allow the Lord to examine our thinking in light of what is written... We're going to have trouble being of the same mind. You know, I'm thankful for this church. I've had pastors say to me, I couldn't preach that in my church. I wouldn't be the pastor. I wouldn't want to be the pastor. kind of reminds me of a story Brother Dickerson told him up in Maryland one time. He said he was in the foyer at the Bible college. This young man came over and introduced himself. He said, I'm so-and-so, I'm the new pastor at Fellowship Baptist Church down the road here. Brother Dickinson said, I said, I'll pray for you. He said, about six months later, he said, I saw him again. He said, Brother Dickinson, he said, I saw the twinkle in your eye that day when you said, I'll pray for you. He said, do you ever pastor a church where no two people believe the same thing? So, you know, what churches usually do is they speak, pastors speak in generalities to avoid conflict. Therefore, the congregation remains weak. Weak. You know, this is a great testimony of this church that we still exist after what it's been through. Do you know why that is? It's because we examine things in light of the scriptures. 
it says that we are not weak. But see, we have to be transparent. We have to be willing to receive. There has to be a reception. You know, verse 7 says, um, Wherefore, receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. You know, there has to be, the weak have to be willing to receive the help from the strong. The strong have to be willing to receive the weak in and be willing to help them. It goes both ways. You know, it requires an acceptance that we may be wrong. And we need to accept people where they are and help them be transformed by the renewing of the mind. You know, so I told one person that you know, a church is a hospital for souls. For the soul. Spurgeon said this, quote, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect. Because he could see no fault in us, or because he hoped to gain somewhat out of our hands. Oh, no. But in loving condescension, covering our faults and seeking our good, he welcomed us to his heart. So in the same way and with the same purpose, let us receive one another. Unquote. See, we need to receive help from one another. Do you know that you need my help? But you, do you know that I need your help? I saw this, and I thought it's very true. So I'm going to read it to you. One commentator said this, quote, Ministers need the prayers of their flocks. With Paul, I urge you to strive in your prayers for your pastors. We need your prayers. We thank God for them. Pastors are sustained by the power of the Spirit through the support of their congregations. Unquote. Spurgeon credited his success to the prayers of his people. You see, we need to be we need to receive one another, be willing to receive the truth, to change our minds, to allow the Lord to transform our minds into thinking and allow ourselves to be examined by his word. So there's an exhortation here to be like-minded, like-mindedness. Then thirdly, that we are also, we're to bear one of those burdens, not to please ourselves, but we're also to bear the burden of propagating the gospel. In verses 8 through 11, and then verses 16 through 24, I'm not going to read that for sake of time, but in verse 8 it says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause... I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto the name. So Jesus ministered, or he gave himself. He pleased not himself, but gave himself to confirm the promises to Israel. In other words, to bring the gospel of the kingdom of God to Israel. You know, he, he began his ministry, and it says that you know, he, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now he was to Israel. He never journeyed outside of Israel. And so that's his purpose was to bring the gospel to Israel. The Gentiles were receiving the gospel was a result of what he began and was carried on by his disciples. Verse 9, 
and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as is written. For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thee. And there's some quotations here from the Psalms. Psalm 1849 says, Therefore I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and sing praises unto thee. Psalm 117, 1 says, O praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye people. See, the giving of the gospel requires the giving of ourselves. It requires our time. It requires our talents. It requires our finances, the sacrifice of our personal ambitions. That's what we're here for. We are not here to please ourselves. But like we read earlier, too many want it easy to enjoy the pleasures of life and not go far from home, be liked by everyone. One lady said to me one time, it was in another church, I want to be able to look out my window and see mom's house. And she, she does. She still is. Sometimes I wonder about if it did cost her dearly. She ended up divorced. Many times living too close to mom can be a problem in a marriage. I said, where's your, where's your pioneer spirit? Oh, not me. I never go. I read one time of a guy by the name of Dr. Percival. His daughter wanted to go to the mission field. And he said to her, I forbid you to leave my sight. He lost his sight. And then one day he said to her, I forbid you to leave my sight, but God has taken you out of my sight. See, the problem is today, too many have never asked Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Instead they say, Lord, I will do this. Is that the same? Definitely not. That is pleasing self. Now you may ask, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And he may not send you anywhere except here. You may never be asked to go to, to pull up roots and move, but there may be some who the Lord may ask to pull up roots and move. You know, Paul took the gospel, he says this in verses 15 through 19, he took the gospel from Jerusalem to Lyricum. That's modern-day Albania. So he left Jerusalem. He went up through Turkey, western Turkey, went across the, I think it's the Aegean Sea, into Europe, Corinth, Athens, you know, into Greece, and then even up into what's now modern-day Albania, Europe as far as missionary journeys. And in writing here to the churches of Rome, he says, uh, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem with an offering from the brethren. And then my plan is I'm going to Spain to take the gospel to those that have never heard.
you know, it's our privilege and our responsibility to take the gospel. To reach the unreached. You know, we must go where others will not go. Have not gone. It may mean leaving home, region, state, country. It may cost you your life. But God will restore it a hundredfold. Yeah, Gary Forney said, and Gary Forney is a very happy man. Gary Forney said, I started a church in the Arctic. It took 20 plus years of my life. But there's a church in the Arctic that is now starting churches. And that church gives over $100,000 a year to missions. They're sending missionaries to other places. But it took 20 years of Brother Forney's life. It took the health of Mrs. Forney for a while. But would he do it again? Absolutely. He said, if I could, I'd go back. I'd go back. I'd go back. You see, we're not here to please ourselves. We are to bear the burden of the gospel. It is the good news of the kingdom. And we are to take it. We're not here to please ourselves. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.33, Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Are you willing to bear the burden of the gospel? Of course, first of all, you have to receive it for yourself. Have you received the gospel? Been born again by the Spirit of God. You know, we have a great privilege as God's people and as one of the Lord's churches. We have the privilege of bearing the burden of the gospel. Might we take that responsibility and privilege that God's given us seriously and be willing to give of ourselves that the gospel might reach those that are yet unreached.